The Bible reading this morning can be found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Well, as we look at that passage together this morning, shall we have a moment of prayer together? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our one and only mediator, our ransom, a testimony given in its right time. As we bow down this morning before the majesty of your glory, we pray that you would teach us and that you would be lifted up, not just here amongst us, but as we go at the end of the service, so that the nations may know and come to worship you, our King. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you this morning. Let me add my welcome to Andrews. Uh, And it's particularly good uh, to see you. If I haven't had a chance to say uh, hello since I've arrived back from holiday, it seems rather a long time ago now that I was in New Zealand, but if I haven't had a chance, it's great to say hello and to see you again. There, There was a specific time in New Zealand where I actually wondered whether I ever would see you again. Uh, I was landing into Sydney Airport on the way back from holiday, uh, and we arrived to find Sydney Airport closed. Uh, An enormous storm was sweeping through Sydney and had completely shut the airport. The runway was so flooded that nothing could land on it, and so we spent the better part of an hour circling the Pacific Ocean, uh, or at least that bit of the Pacific Ocean, in the air, flying in and out of clouds, dropping like a stone suddenly in air pockets, lightning going off all around us. This is not calculated to please you if you've got a fear of flying. Um, It it, it wasn't particularly great at the time for uh, us either. It was one of those times where you really wanted to see the speech bubbles above people's heads. I guess some of them would have been rather stoically sat there thinking, well, whatever happens, happens. There's nothing we can do about it. God doesn't exist. We'll just kind of leave it to luck and chance and see how things go. I guess some who might have been slightly more trusting needed to direct their kind of their thoughts to the pilot, kind of willing the pilot to save us and to bring us to a gentle landing. I'm sure that some people would have sat there and been praying to a whole variety of gods of various sorts. I was sat there in seat 70A, uh, right at the back of the plane, more leg room and you can see the whole plane in front of you, a picture of external calm, 
with my eyes closed. Uh, the only telltale signs may have been the hands gripping the armrests, white knuckles showing, uh, giving the game away that I was a bit nervous. When push comes to shove and under pressure, things become remarkably clear. Almost on autopilot, I guess, we give up the sense of putting on any kind of pretense or act, and we start to reveal our hearts. We cry out. We cry out to the one who we think can save. We cry out to the one who we think can save with our most pressing requests. And that's what takes us to our passage this morning and the points that we're going to make about it. We're going to look at our only requirement as Christians, or our first requirement, our only saviour and our most pressing requests. Our first requirement, our only saviour and our most pressing requests. If you've shut the Bible, do feel free to open it again. It's, it was page 1192, and we're going to start by looking at the first verse of chapter 2. This is what Paul says to Timothy, the young church leader. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made. I, I urge, I beg, I implore, I beseech in old language, I exhort. This is something that's really important. And so the question that's going around Timothy's mind is what can be that important? And there it is. We follow through. It's prayer. Prayer, crying out to God, is perhaps the humblest, perhaps the truest, perhaps the most revealing act that a human being is capable of. Praying reveals our heart. It acknowledges both the limits of our understanding and the limits of our ability to enact our understanding. It clarifies, doesn't it, the depths of our desires, what we most deeply want and feel. It submits to, it seeks God. The first steps of Christian faith, the ongoing journey of Christian faith, the giant leaps of Christian faith, the smallest tiptoes of Christian faith are steps that we make on our knees. We advance as Christians by kneeling. John Stott put it like this, the church, he said, is essentially a worshipping, praying community. It's often said that the church's priority task is evangelism, but this is really not so. Worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because love for God is the first commandment and love for neighbor is the second. Partly because long after the church's evangelistic task has been completed, God's people will continue to worship him eternally. And partly because evangelism itself is an aspect of worship. Any vision and strategy process, any period of consultation, any 
vacancy is an opportunity to bring our priorities into focus. It was great that the first thing that we did after Andrew, our vicar, announced his uh, forthcoming retirement was to pray. We had a month of prayer, if you remember. But let's just go back and remember that first of all in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, isn't a phrase of time. Begin the process by praying, and then once you've prayed, get on with the rest of the process. The first of all here is a first of all of importance or of priority. As we carry on with the process, let's keep putting prayer first. As we step forward as a church, as we step forward as individuals in our own Christian lives, let's keep kneeling. As I was flying back in from at New Zealand, one of the uh, unenviable tasks uh, you might find the same when you get back from uh, holiday is to catch up with your emails. Um, I love emails and I love receiving them from folk. Uh, there was quite a lot of them. Uh, and as I was wading through my emails, it was great to come across one of Andrew's weekly emails and to read this reminder from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And so I guess the question for us as it comes to doing church is what do we, what do I put first, and what does that reveal about my desires and my understanding of God, others, and myself. Do I put prayer first? Uh, It's a question that I've been asking myself. By nature, I tend to be an activist. I am self-reliant as an individual, and prayer isn't necessarily my primary natural reflex. Uh, And so as I was preaching this to myself, as I usually do in the kitchen to the cupboards, uh, I decided to kind of rip myself off a piece of paper. It it, it was very simple. It's it's the roughest of prayer bookmarks in the world. But I ripped myself off a piece of paper, scribbled the points down I really wanted to pray for, and shoved it in the front of my Bible. I wonder if there's something that reminds you to keep prayer your first priority. For Paul, prayer is the first requirement in public worship because it reminds us that this Christian community under pressure, it reminds them of who the only saviour is. When the chips are down, you pray, you pray to the one who really saves. Ephesus was a, a, a syncretistic type of place Uh, Some of you have been there. I know that somebody in the congregation this morning who used to run a library in Ephesus. Uh, Lots of uh, different things going on in Ephesus. It was really on the axis of political power. It was on a significant trade route, so on an economic axis. All streams of thought just flowed through the centre of Ephesus. So it's not surprising, is it, that Timothy's concern, or Paul's concern for Timothy is that actually he wouldn't get carried off course by these flows of thinking, that he wouldn't get carried off course by dubious teaching either about God or by dubious teaching about gods that aren't God at all. Uh, Greco-Roman society wasn't a great place if you held to an exclusive truth claim. 
Uh, many of you will know that when the Romans rolled into town, what they simply did was to grab all the local gods and kind of add them to their pantheon, which was an ever-increasing size. They were rather generous with the term saviour. They kind of like liberally applied it to all of those gods who had been gathered. And so Zeus was called saviour, but also so was his daughter Artemis. Artemis had an enormous temple in Ephesus, uh, high on a hill, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. She was called a saviour. A whole succession of Roman emperors were called saviour as well. And so prayer was offered to this kind of schmoggers board of deities. It was a kind of uh, pick one and pray your prayer. Uh, Ephesus liked to think of itself as an extremely enlightened place. In stark contrast to all of that, Paul, in verse 1 of his letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, has made it clear who these Christians in Ephesus pray to. They pray to the God who is their saviour. They pray to Christ Jesus, God's promised Messiah, saviour, king. Now, that would have made life pretty uncomfortable going for these supposedly narrow-minded Christians in open-minded Ephesus. Quite literally uncomfortable. Nero was the Roman emperor at this time. Some of you will be aware that Nero had a hobby of arresting Christians, of coating our early brothers and sisters in tar, and in using them as flaming torches to light his garden by night. Oxford, perhaps the whole of the UK, shares quite a lot in common with Ephesus. Thank you that it doesn't share those, uh, that, that, that last aspect of really difficult persecution. But we're in a prime position, aren't we, on a significant economic access. Our G7 membership puts us on a significant political axis, certainly on a significant academic access. All streams of thought flow through our city. And so I guess lots of us here will know that it can be a fairly difficult place to hold to an exclusive truth claim about God. I'm not sure about you, I've found since I've arrived in Oxford that confrontations done quite politely uh, here. here. Here's how the conversations, for me, at least normally go if somebody wants to confront me in Oxford. It always starts off in a terribly British, polite way. It always starts off with, that's a fascinating thought. Um, you might have come up against this. Uh, it's a fascinating thought. It, explain to me just a little bit what you mean by that. Um, intriguing. Uh, have you considered this counter-argument? And then at that point, all the gloves are off and we wade into full confrontation and debate. It's always polite. Uh, it's never particularly violent, but there's a definite undertone to it. Prayer brings us to the feet of the one who truly saves. It reminds us that the truth about God can't be relative. If Christ Jesus is God's promised king and saviour, he can't be just a prophet. He can't be just a good teacher. He can't be just one amongst hundreds of avatars or incarnations of God. He can't be just a compelling historic figure. He can't be just a good guy. He can't be just 
his death and resurrection validating his claims as to who he was and is don't allow us any of those options. Christ Jesus is Oxford and the world's only saviour. And Oxford and the world needs to call out to Christ Jesus. And we as a church need to teach him and his word faithfully and boldly week by week and during the week too. If this is the world we inhabit, if this is our first requirement in public worship, and if God is the only saviour of the world, then the next question and the final one for this morning is what should we actually pray? What should be the most pressing requests to God our saviour? And Paul gives us a very clear idea. We're back in chapter 2. We're still in verse 1, actually. Um, If you have a look through to the end of verse 1, we see what we are supposed to pray about. And the answer is simple. The answer is everyone. There at the end of verse 1, everyone. If the first commandment is to love God and the second commandment is to love our neighbor, then there's a simple sequence of, of, of logic. If God loves everyone he's made, it was great to sing about it in our Uh, one of our songs, if God loves everyone he's made, then actually God wants them to hear the good news. And so therefore, our first prayer request is to pray for everyone. And for Paul, let's just remind ourselves, that was was a fairly big deal. God's love stretched even to the pyrotechnic maniac Nero. Today, perhaps, it stretches to Kim Jong-un in North Korea. I was reading Open Doors' latest mailing. You might be aware of Open Doors. They're based just down the road in Whitney, and they help us to pray for the persecuted church. Mrs. Shelter, a Christian living on the North Korea-China border, writes this. I treat the North Korean spies with as much love as I treat the real refugees. God's love is for everyone. Here's where the rubber hits the road for us. I wonder who the most difficult people to love in your world are. We're asked to pray not just for the people who we find it easy to pray for and to love, but to pray for everyone. And that's tough going, isn't it, if somebody is messing with my world, if somebody's abused the trust that I've put in them, if somebody is currently acting maliciously to tear what feels like my weak and fragile life limb from limb. But as we love people by praying for their needs as we love people by praying for their greatest good, their greatest need, perhaps praying for them to know God if they don't know God already. If they do know God, praying that they would know God's love so much that their thoughts and lives and words might reflect it. As we pray, we begin to share God's heart for them. And in quite a beautiful way, we find our hearts being changed to be more in tune with God's heart 
for them as well, for those who we had thought were, were least worthy of love. We're transformed even as we pray for their transformation. And so we pray, and we pray for everyone. And as we just skim our eyes through verse 2 and the verses that follow, we see that God would have us pray for those who rule us, to allow us to live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. It's worth reflecting on that as you go away. There's not time to look at it now, but peaceful and quiet living as Christians in the current UK climate deserves a whole range of thought and reflection. I guess briefly it means praying for our government, that our government would continue to allow us to proclaim Jesus as king freely and peacefully. It certainly means praying for those same politicians as they also look to protect our country from uh, the tactics of terrorist fanatics bent on death and destruction. That's not an easy call in a society which values freedom of speech and expression of faith. It'll mean working with the authorities wherever possible and perhaps realising that our quietest words can sometimes shout loudest. Paul, for all his confrontation with authority, actually knew what working peacefully with authority looked like. If you uh, scan back at some point to Acts 19, you'll see there the town clerk of Ephesus calming an enormous disturbance that's about to kick off when Paul explains about Jesus and following the way. Paul realizes what getting on with authority quietly and peacefully looks like and how it can benefit the gospel. The House of Lords in the UK certainly knows what Christians coming in prayerful peace looks like. There's a great story. You can imagine the scene. It was a recent vote on a significantly difficult moral issue. The lobbying had been particularly frenetic and particularly loud and fractious. It dies away as the debate itself starts. The lords are gathered in the debating chamber and there's a background music of a kind of sort of silent hum. It sort of sounds like the air conditioning in the House of Lords chamber. And the lords look up and in the gallery surrounding the debate are Christians quietly praying. Peaceful and quiet living can often have a significant effect, but it also doesn't necessarily mean staying silent. It doesn't mean, as a church, being silenced. It doesn't mean some kind of comfortable retreat into a sort of anachronistic obscurity the church was the thing that we used to do. Paul, who worked with the authorities, also knew when to stand up if they were obstructing the call of God, our Saviour, to proclaim him. Remember, as we look through, Paul was a herald of the gospel. He was an apostle. He was a teacher. Quiet living for him didn't mean staying quiet. Sometimes it meant actual confrontation. And so as we land this morning... Just like the Ephesian church, perhaps the modern UK church needs to discern sometimes where quieter words shout 
loudest, but also where we need the courage to speak up, to speak out about God's truth, and to confront error where it's needed and before it's too late. We'll be better equipped to discern all of that by prayer and the priority that we've been looking at this morning. Our first requirement as a worshipping community, addressed to our only saviour about our most pressing requests. It's in keeping that we finish by praying. Let's pray. And so we thank you, Lord, for what we've seen this morning, that we take our greatest steps forward as we kneel down. That perhaps for those of us who are not quite sure what steps forward in faith look like, or perhaps are feeling particularly uh, beaten by life's circumstances, perhaps by other individuals at the moment, who perhaps feel that retreat is the only option, thank you that even the most timid of steps forward can be taken as we pray on our knees. And thank you that that's possible, because as we pray, we humbly submit to you. We, we realize the limits of our own power, and we pray for your power and love to transform not just our situations, but we find ourselves being transformed as well. So we thank you for prayer, and we pray continually that you would keep driving us to our knees because we need you because you are our only savior jesus christ our lord amen